The Way Out Podcast, episode 157. I got back involved in recovery and, you know, and and with a slightly deeper commitment. And it was hard. You know, I think the first time, you know, I had I was in treatment, I was it was new, it was all that, and I felt like pretty quickly I fully embraced recovery life and the desire to use kind of left me. This time around was no such luck. Like, I mean, I think I embraced it, but man, I wanted to drink for a long time. It just wouldn't go away. You know, it was just there. Right. Um, And, you know, I got through it. It did go away. You know, the day came where it, you know, it went away and it is gone. And I haven't, you know, it's, it's, it's not a problem. Um, But it was the second time through really felt a lot harder for me. And I don't know why. But I think that's a common experience I hear from a lot of people who've had a fair amount of time when they go back out, coming back is really difficult. And I know some people who simply have not made it back. You know, they come back, they keep coming to meetings, they just can't get any kind of time together. And before they had five years, 10 years, a broader perspective, a wider perspective, a bigger perspective that includes more leads to less suffering and a drinking, collapsing perspective leads to more suffering for me. The more that we make that outward flowing motion, the, the, the better our life is. And the more we let the, the, the general energy be this inward flowing, uh, you know, collapsing energy, the more we suffer. Does everybody have to hit bottom? I don't, I, you know, I think in the same way that I said that, you know, I can look back and see these things in hindsight. I think a bottom is something that we only, it's only the bottom if we start moving up from it. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week, we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This 
podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and this week we've got a very special interview for you with Eric Zimmer, a person in long-term recovery from alcoholism and addiction, as well as the host and co-founder of the One You Feed podcast. The namesake of the aforementioned podcast comes from a Cherokee parable. The parable, for those of you who are unfamiliar, goes as follows. An old Cherokee chief was teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger. Envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, self-doubt, and ego. The other one is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside of every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old chief simply replied, the one you feed. Eric's far from idyllic journey to recovery is chock full of spiritual truth and downright useful wisdom stemming from not only his personal experience, but that of nearly 300 interviews of folks across the recovery and spiritual spectrum. The episode is brimming with value to you, whether you're contemplating recovery, new to recovery, or a recovery veteran. Listen up. Eric, thank you so much for coming on to the Way Out podcast and sharing your story and uh, more about what you do. You are uh, the host of the One You Feed podcast and uh, allow you to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Well, hello. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm the host of the One You Feed podcast. I've been in recovery really most of my adult life, which is a pretty long time at this at this juncture at my at my age. And uh, I'm happy to be here. And how old are you, Eric? Forty nine. Forty nine years young. And how long have you been in recovery? I have been continuously sober now 13 years, and then before that, I had about an eight-year stint of recovery also. Now, I've already asked Eric if that was also nights and weekends, and he has certified (laughs) that it includes nights and weekends. So hot damn, that's an accomplishment, and that's something that, uh, you know, the longer we are in recovery and the longer we're continuously sober, the more I realize that this thing's a day at a time. Right, but thirteen years is uh, a, quite a few days at a time. It is. It is a. It is a good number of days at a time. But you're right. It is a day at a time. So tell me a little bit about your recovery, your journey to recovery. I mean, you're thirteen years sober, but you said you've been in 
recovery for most of your adult life. So, you know, uh, start from wherever you want uh, and tell us a little bit about, you know, how um, uh, uh, you, what, what your journey was like. Yeah, I got sober the first time at age 24, and um, I was a heroin addict at that point, and I had a pretty low bottom. I was homeless. Um, I was looking at going to jail for a really long time. I had hepatitis C. I weighed 100 pounds. You know, I was, I was in really bad shape, and so I got sober then, and, and I stayed sober about eight years. So and you, then eight, I, you had an eight-year... Uh, uh, you had eight years of continuous sobriety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I did. And then I started to think, well, maybe I could drink again. And mm-hmm. so I tried that and I drank and smoked a, a, a copious amount of marijuana. And I did that for several years. I don't remember exactly how many, but then I got sober again. And that was 13 years ago. So Coming up on 14, I think. What was your pathway originally into recovery, your initial eight years of recovery, (laughs) did you have a recovery program that you worked? Did you do it by yourself? What did that look like for you? Yeah, by no stretch of the imagination was it by myself. I went into a detox program, which led to a 28-day treatment program, um, which then led to me going to a lot of 12-step meetings for a little while. Then I went into, actually went into a halfway house because an opportunity opened up. And um, when I got out of that, I was very, very involved in 12-step recovery. So that was really my path, you know, treatment, halfway house, lots and lots and lots of meetings. And so you're, you're going strong, lots of meetings, 12-step recovery. Did you work all 12 steps in that, um, in that recovery? I did. I did. Yeah. Yep. And tell me a little bit, because I, I got to tell you, I, one of the biggest benefits I get from continuing to do service work is that I encounter folks that have had long-term sobriety and have relapsed. Mm-hmm. And it's a great reminder for me that I too can have that if I stop doing what I need to do um, on a daily basis in order to keep my serenity and my recovery and keep in fit spiritual condition, right? Uh, so tell me a little bit about that process. You know, was it, was it a, as you look back on the relapse, was it you know, a long time coming? Was it out of the blue? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it was a long time coming. Um, You know, I was in recovery. I was doing well. I was married and my partner was in recovery and we had a small child and um, she decided that she wanted to leave the marriage for another guy who happened to be someone who was also in AA that we knew. And, um, And that didn't cause me to drink. But what happened was, I think what it exposed in me was that I did not have a spiritual program that I really believed in. I kind of came into recovery and I started to believe, I was told, you know, believe, you know, have to have a higher power, you've got to believe in God. And so I sort of adopted the one that was most commonly around me, which was sort of a 
Christian-based, you know, idea of God. But that never really resonated with me, but yet I clung to it because I felt like I had to. Mm. And so when my life sort of fell apart, because that's what it felt like when my my wife left me and I had my, you know, wasn't living with my two-year-old son anymore Mm. and Mm. all that, I, I realized that I didn't have a spiritual life that really could sustain me. I didn't have a spiritual life. I didn't have a spiritual belief that, that could accommodate what was happening to me. Mm. And so what ended up happening was I just slowly started to kind of drift away from recovery. Um, I think I was angry. I was, you know, there was this part of me that's like, this shouldn't be allowed to happen. Like, you know, she should, you know, like, and everybody in AA was like, well, you know, I feel bad for you, but you know, you know, they, they were still in AA. They were still sort of welcomed in AA, which of course they should have been, right? Right. Of course they should have been. Right. But I had this, like, it's not fair. Like, and I get, I, I, I totally get you there because I absolutely can get into a place where, you know, I fundamentally refuse to accept that this should have happened, that right. this thing in my life should have happened. It's not right. It's not fair. And I'm fucking pissed. Yep. Yep. And I think right? that, that's where I was. And so, um, you know, I, I stayed sober through that. I mean, I did not drink. It was really, you know, m- multiple years. But I think it started a path. And then kind of, you know, I think the main thing that happened is that I sort of got very focused on me mm-hmm. and my, well, just me. You know, how am I feeling? How am I doing? Some of it was necessary. I think in some ways I needed to do some internal focus. I needed to do, you know, I did a lot of uh, therapy work during that period. And I think a lot of it was really valuable. So I don't regret it. Um, but that sort of transition from being helpful to being um, all interested in myself. And I started to just engage in behaviors that were not really great, right? I started to become very promiscuous, right? I, it all became for me about, you know, I was trying to fill that, that void, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the marriage left a void and I was trying to fill it. Mm. And so I was filling it by, you know, lots of promiscuity, but it, it, but the long and short of it was, I just wasn't really focused on anybody but myself. Mm. And then, um, you know, and then the idea of drinking sort of came and, you know, I, at that point, I was about eight years sober. You know, I was doing very well professionally. Um, I was in really good shape. I was exercising. I was eating well. And I started thinking about it. And the thoughts just sort of started coming like, well, you know, you were pretty young back then. And you were doing heroin, right? Which we all know is a terrible idea. Like we can all agree that you you can't. That we shouldn't do. That we shouldn't do, right? Right. And look at your life, you know, like you've done all this work, you did, you know, you worked the steps, you've been through therapy. Look at all the good decisions you make. You make good decisions about going to work. You make good decisions at work. You make good decisions about taking care of your son. You make good decisions about your health, right? Uh, Maybe the problem wasn't that I'm an alcoholic. The problem just was that I was doing heroin and I was young and I hadn't developed a lot of these skills that I now have. And that thought sort of just slowly insinuated itself. And that's, that, that simmered for a while, didn't it? It simmered for a while, yep. 
And then I found out that my brother, who came into recovery about two years after I as a heroin addict, had been drinking for about six months, and he reported it was going great. Ooh, so now you had some outside evidence, some outside research. Yeah, particularly that, outside right. research that, that was genetically connected, right? That's because right. The other thing we go, well, it's this genetic thing, and well, look, maybe... You know, and my sister seemed like she used to have a problem and now she didn't. And so that just sort of simmered until the time came. You're I started adding these things into the soup, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's simmering around. And then I started dating somebody who drank and we were away on a ski vacation. And I thought, why not? You know, what's, what's having a drink going to do? And um, sure enough, it didn't do anything. I had a beer. What? You didn't spontaneously combust? No. And oh. It's funny. It's funny because I think in AA, in, in recovery, we get so dramatic about things. Totally. I remember saying things <laughs> like, if I take a drink, I'll be out on Main Street selling my, you know what, for, you know, for <laughs> totally. heroin in, in an hour. <laughs> totally. totally. Right? If I drink again, I, you know, right. and I drink <laughs> right. again and nothing happened. I had a beer and I went to bed. Right. Right, right. And then I don't know when I had another beer. Was it the next day, a few days later? I don't know. It, but the long and short of it was there was nothing catastrophic happening. Right. And so I went, see all those stories I was saying. I'm not out doing heroin again. I'm not drinking all day. I'm you, not. Didn't, you didn't like immediately lose your job, your house, you I know. Never, right. I never lost. <laughs> exactly. Right. right. So what happened was it just, you know, it like anything else, like it did, it just picked up speed slowly, imperceptibly, it picked up speed until, you know, I was drinking every day, I was smoking pot all the time, I was, I was not doing well. But on the outside, I still had, you know, I, shortly before I got sober, I had just gotten, again, I had gotten promoted in the best job I ever had. I'm living in a really nice house, I'm driving a really nice car, right? Okay. I'm I'm doing good work. Everything looks fine, right? Except on the inside. And I knew somehow, I just knew, I hit a point where I realized everything on the outside looks different and I'm not doing heroin, but on the inside, I'm just as sick as I was then. Mm, that Jekyll and Hyde is manifesting, yeah? Well, what I realized was and actually, my behavior wasn't bad. What I realized was that I was every bit as out of control. Mm. Right? I knew that, yeah, it wasn't heroin, but it was alcohol. But the, con the fact that I wasn't having consequences had everything to do with the fact that the substance I was choosing to use was legal. And yeah. I could buy it pretty inexpensively. And, but that inside, I was just as sort of controlled by the desire and the substance as I was before. It's just that it all had not, you know, the circumstances, you know, just the, just the laws of society made it so that this was easier for me to maintain. Yeah, socially but, acceptable to be able to yeah. maintain that kind of addiction. Yep. And so, you know, I knew things were getting bad. And so I actually enrolled myself in a program called moderation management. And, um, and I'm really glad I did this because is this harm, is this harm reduction? I don't think we were using those terms all those years ago, but yes, yes. I don't think we were using those terms. Moderation management's uh, key tenant was 
hey, look, you know, most people who have a problem with drinking are not alcoholics and they don't have to be abstinent. There are, there are ways that those people are not so far gone that they might be able to tone it down. And that uh, the, only, the only model for recovery that was available was people go to 12-step meetings and that wasn't appropriate for everybody. And I agree with that. One percent. I agree with that a one hundred percent. So I said, "Well, huh? I've got a couple choices here. One is either I'm going to have to get sober, which seemed like death, um, or I can learn to moderate this, right?" And 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 you know, that's there's that line from the you know the big book. That's every whole dream that somehow, (laughs) some way, right? The the to the extent we. Uh, pursue this illusion is astonishing, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. But but it's it's an illusion that has to be seen through, right? And it so does. for me, moderation management was great because I worked that program so hard. I worked it as hard as I ever worked a recovery program because I was like, I am not going to stop. I do not want to stop drinking. I don't want to let this thing go. I don't want to let this thing go. And I do not, for God's sake, want to go back to AA. Right. And so, which is funny because I love AA. But yeah, but at that point, do you think you were harboring probably a little bit of a resentment toward it? Probably. And I just was like, it just, when you're, when you're viewing the world through the lens I was viewing the world through, it just doesn't look appealing. Right. You know, and that's the, that's one of the challenges of getting sober or being sober really early on is that the lens we're viewing the world through is not the lens that we will view the world through six months, nine months, a year later with sobriety. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem is you can't, we can't even fathom what life will look like because our lens is just, it's just what it is. And, and, and through that lens, things like sobriety and contentment and fellowship and all that stuff, you just like, oh, are you kidding me? Whatever. Like, you know, um, so I had that going on. So I worked moderation management really hard and I, I, you know, I, I couldn't do it. I could do it sometimes. Some days I could do it, right? Some days, but very rarely. And with great, great effort and struggling, you know, and, and uh, I remember, you know, plenty of nights I would be standing at my, my sink in my kitchen and it would be like 11 o'clock at night and I'm going to bed. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm about to go to bed. And, you know, I got to get up at 6.30 in the morning and I'm sitting there with a bottle of whiskey and I'm like, I'm in this battle for whether I should have one more shot. There's no reason on God's green earth. I am literally going to walk up the stairs, get in bed and go to sleep. There's no reason at all to have another drink. Mm-hmm. And yet I lost that battle way more than I want it, mm. you know, and it, boy, was it a battle, right? Mm. I think everybody who's, who's got a problem has felt this. You're trying not to. No doubt about it. And you're just torn in half. No doubt about it. You know, it's interesting as you walked through the process where it became okay in your mind to first have a drink um, after eight years of sobriety. Your disease uh, sounds a lot like mine, man. Um, And, you know, I've relapsed before and uh, eerily similar the process. And, you know, it starts like this. I miss a meeting. And I don't spontaneously combust. And then I miss another meeting. And I, and I slowly drift away 
from the things that got me better. But nothing bad happens. Right. And then thoughts come up like this. Hey, Charlie, you haven't gone to a meeting. You've stopped praying. You've stopped being of service. All the things that you've been told keep you sober. And you're still sober. Hmm. Maybe, just maybe, it wasn't the meetings that were keeping you sober. It wasn't your higher power that was keeping you sober. It wasn't the service work. It wasn't the fellowship. It was you all along. You were keeping you sober. Well, and shit, if you can keep yourself sober, then you could have a drink. Obviously. Because you have the power to be sober whenever you want. It was never any of that stuff in the first place. But then, I, you know, you let that simmer. You don't act on it right away because, you know, that's the mind fuck, right? Right. So I've arrived at this decision, but I'm not going to act on it right away because if I do, that probably means I'm an alcoholic. And I certainly um, uh, already convinced myself that I'm probably not, right? Uh, so just amazing the, the eerie similarities between, you know, how your, uh, how, how your relapse manifested versus how, you know, it's manifested for me in my, in my life in the times that I've relapsed. Yep. Yep. I think the process probably looks pretty similar in a lot of people, at least people who have a little bit of time in, you know, I think earlier, at least for me, you know, my my earlier relapses, you know, earlier in the process, right there, they are more just boom, it just hits you and totally. over, right? Um, but yeah, I think people who have time, there's a there's a process involved, and so. Um, so you're so coming yeah. out of this moderation. When do you decide at some point that this moderation management thing, this thing, this thing isn't working for me? I don't know how long I did it, but I eventually just threw it to the side. I didn't then turn and get sober. I just was like, this isn't working. This isn't working. <laughs> just <laughs> right. kind of, you know, back to it, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the my bottom, such as it was, in comparison to my previous bottom, is like a flea bite, right? Um, I go out drinking one night, and I'm with a friend, and I pass out at his house, and I wake up the next morning, with my phone ringing and it's like, you know, eight thirty nine in the morning. It's my, it's my, well, she's not my wife at that time, but I think she might be my fiance. We're living together. Right. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to get a hold of me. And, um, you know, I didn't make it home that night and, um, you know, she was there. So she got my son up and, and got him to school. Right. Uh -huh, but I okay. had never, ever, missed that right i had never up to this point with all my drinking you know i was always there with what he needed right maybe i wasn't the best parent i don't know in a lot of ways i think when i was drinking and smoking i was an easier to get along with parent right uh, totally but but i had always been there and this time i didn't and nothing bad happened she was there and she took him but that wasn't really her responsibility and it hit me like well what if what if she hadn't been there? You know, what if I'd hired a babysitter? Mm. You know, what, and when I thought about my son waking up alone in the morning, and I don't know how old he was at that age, five maybe, 
six, seven, I don't know, somewhere in there. And I thought of him waking up and like me not being there and the confusion. And it just, and I was sick. I had been on a multi-day bender, just drinking really hard. Um, I was, so I was really sick. That was there. Of course, my, my, my fiance was furious with me and all that was enough. I don't know why it was enough that, you know, I think mainly maybe to get her off my back. I don't know. I went mm-hmm. to an AA meeting. And I hated my way through the whole meeting. You know? <laughs> like I just hated it. So you, you know? hate so you hate listened. Yeah, I hate listened through the whole thing. Yeah. But for whatever reason I didn't drink. And then I went again and I but but I was really struggling. You know, I was really I was really torn. And I think a, a part of it was because I was um like I said, I think I was doing some of it for her. Um, certainly doing some of it for him, even though he wasn't old enough to make a request like that. Um, so I did that for, I, you know, I can't remember now whether I did that for three months or six months, but I did. I just kept going, not drinking, but wanting to drink terribly and really not, not being real happy with the process. Not always, not always hating it. There were times I liked it more, but I felt like I was, and then one day I, um, you know, I drank again and it was two nights. One night I, I drank and, you know, drank a lot and it wasn't very pretty. And the next night I drank and it was like I was pouring the whiskey down my throat as fast as it would go. I went from sober to projectile vomiting in about 30 minutes. And when I came out the other side of that, I just kind of, something in me was like, I think I'm done. You know, something in me was, not that it was easy, but something in me shifted, and I think I just was like, there's nothing left here. You know, this game is played out. There's nothing left for me but that kind of drinking like I had the night before. Like a switch flipped. Yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's easier to see, right? right? I think in the moment, I couldn't have told you that a switch flipped, but something did. And because I went back to AA and I think I embraced it a little bit more. I think I just, I think I would say like, you know, the time up till then I was like, you know, maybe I was 90% in, hmm. you know? um, or maybe I was 51% in 49. I don't know how hmm. close it was. Right. But, but I was enough in that I stayed sober that long, but I couldn't c- continuously do it. And when I came out of that, there was just enough. And so, you know, I just, I just kind of went back and I, I went in and, um, you know, I just, again, in, it, this stuff's easy to see in retrospect. It's hindsight you know, is twenty twenty, man. Yeah. And you, you never know when the last time you take a drink is, no. you know, and I hesitate to say the last time, but the last time in a long time, you don't know when that is until you've got some time and you go, Oh, okay, well here, geez, it's been a while. Um, and so, yeah, I got back involved in recovery and, you know, and, and with a slightly deeper commitment and it was hard. You know, I think the first time, you know, I had, I was in treatment, I was, it was new, it was all that. And I felt like pretty quickly I fully embraced recovery life and the desire to use kind of left me. This time around was no such luck. Like, I mean, I think I embraced it, but man, I wanted to drink for a long time. It just wouldn't go away. You know, it was just there. Right. Um, And, you know, I got through it. It did go away. You know, the day came where it, you know, it went away and it is gone and I haven't, you know, it's, it's, it's not a problem. 
Um, but it was the second time through really felt a lot harder for me, and I don't know why. And, but I think that's a common experience I hear from a lot of people who've had a fair amount of time when they go back out, coming back is really difficult. And I know some people who simply have not made it back. You know, they come back, they keep coming to meetings, and they just can't get any kind of time together. And before they had five years, 10 years, but, you know, I don't know what it is, but, but something for me, certainly something was, was, uh, more difficult, but, but here but there, I there was it, it, on the front end, you talked a little bit about the nature of the relationship with the God of your understanding changed this time versus yeah. last time, right. In terms of maybe it being a bit more, uh, authentic, Yes. Yeah. When I came back, I was like, you know what? I've got to find what works for me. And pretending that I believe in um, God in the, in the way that a lot of us talk about God doesn't work. You know, I was really, I really was and am much more of like a Buddhist uh, mentality, yeah. right? And so I just had to go, all right, how do I make this program work for me with what I believe? Hmm. Because if I can't do that, you know, I don't feel like I've got something strong to stand on. Mm. And so I really had to do, um, I had to do a lot of looking at like, what, okay, what do I believe? How do the steps work for me? You know, because my belief, right, is different than a lot of people's, right? And my belief is that there is not, um, you know, of course, none of us know. So when I say my belief, I say that's just that. It's my belief. It's not like my conviction. I'm like, I think ultimately, I'm like, I don't know how any of this stuff really works, right? Right, right. I, know, totally. I, don't, I, you know, I don't know. But my belief is not in that there's a God out there who kind of comes in and intervenes in human affairs. That's just not my belief. So what does the 12-step program look like if I don't believe that's true, Right. And, and so I had to, I had to sort of wrap my head around that and I was able to, right. And I found a spiritual life that worked for me. Um, and I say that, you know, when I, when I talk about that, I say it not in any way to be challenging to people who believe that, because I think we believe whatever you believe. I say that for all the people I know who might believe what I believe, who also then think, well, I can't make this program work because I don't believe that. So instructive, Eric, because my first stint at sobriety, really, I did the same thing, kind of adopted. Now, I didn't work any steps the first time around in my early, early 20s um, after, uh, 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 on the other side of a DWI. Um, I, I stayed sober on wall steps in fellowship and waxing poetically about steps I didn't work. Right? So. <laughs> Um. Uh. Can you imagine? I loved it. It was just great. Just, just wax poetic, Eric, about uh, steps I had not. I had only read off the wall in Allen Oak Clubs, and this time around, coming up on five years, I wipe the slate clean on God. I had a resentment against God because God took my mom away when I was 12. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, 11. So I couldn't get my head around that God. So I had to, I had to wipe the slate clean. I also fundamentally believed that if I could think it up, if I could imagine it, it wasn't big enough for me. 
Yeah. Okay? So this idea that I'm going to create this construct of a God, right, in my own mind, and that God is going to save me from myself was about the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. It just didn't make sense to me. Okay? So if I couldn't adopt the Christian version of God that I was raised on, and I couldn't, quote unquote, make one up, well, what am I going to do? Right. Right? And my sponsor said, pray. I was like, to what? It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. Just pray. And so I prayed to nothing. I legitimately prayed to a blank slate, but I, but I meant it. And that was the difference. I meant it. I was, I was earnestly seeking for whatever I could connect to, right? And so I was putting my connection out there to whatever higher power would take it. And the process worked in that praying to a God that I didn't believe in, that I had no concept of, uh, didn't change the world. It didn't change my boss. It didn't change my kids. It didn't change, you know, it changed me. I changed as a result of it. And because I experienced change, that, that informed my belief in a power greater than myself. I still can't explain what that power looks like or is, but I can tell you what that power feels like when I earnestly seek it. And does that make sense? It does. I do. I think it's very eloquently and said and very, very accurate and true. And I would say that um, my experience is somewhat somewhat similar right i mean i i remember hitting a point where it was sort of like you know let go and let god and i was like well what but if i let go i have no confidence anything out there is going to pick it up right? right and then i realized it doesn't like you said it didn't matter it was the letting go that was the it was the clenching to it that was making me sick right you know it didn't matter it didn't matter nobody needed to pick it up i just needed to let it go <laughs> right, right. It, didn't matter what what the result was it was the it was the clinging that was making me sick and so you know that was a big big sort of rele- revelation to me like oh it's not you know i'm not letting go cuz i think like it's handing off a relay and i'm handing the baton to like you know you know super spiritual power who's going to run and make my life better i just knew that when i let go i got less sick and exactly, and that was a in 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 how you related how I related to the world changed when I continually sought my higher power. The way I related to the world changed, and what I was putting out into the world changed. Yeah, and by virtue of that, what got reflected back changed. And that, for me, was the universal spiritual truth across all beliefs in my mind. When when I seek, I change. When I change, what I put out in the world is is fundamentally 
different, 180 degrees different. And so what I get back is 180 degrees different. Yeah? Yeah. I think I can sign on to that 100%. <laughs> so tell me then, Eric, uh, you are in a new um, stint of recovery. Um, uh, you work at a recovery program. Certainly not easy, but there's a, there's a tone of authenticness to the connection that you're establishing with your higher power. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a reality. There's a reality of a struggle. It's very, very real, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to ask you a question about bottoms, and then I want to talk about what the impetus was for the podcast, the one you feed. So, do you believe everybody has a specific bottom? Do you believe in bottoms? Tell me about, uh, talk about your your perception of quote unquote bottom because you had a really low bottom at one point, yeah. sober for eight years, and then you had a quote unquote high bottom. Yep, yep. Talk about that. Does everybody have to hit bottom? I don't, I, you know, I think in the same way that I said that, you know, I can look back and see these things in hindsight. I think a bottom is something that we only, it's only the bottom if we start moving up from it. Right. If so, like you know, some people's bottoms are shockingly low, and and a lot of people's bottoms is death. So I, I don't. I, I do believe there there that there is something in the concept of a bottom. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a completely useless concept. Right. I think it might be a little bit overrated, though. Right. And it we might put more emphasis on it. I think that as much as I know anything about what causes people to get sober and, and believe me, I think it's God, you know, it's, it's a mystery, right? Right. But it seems to me that when a, some sort of quote unquote bottom, and by that I'll mean a moment of consequence, a moment of like, fuck this, sucks. I hope it's okay to swear. This Absolutely sucks. It is. Yep. Right. Like that, when that comes together with some amount of hope, which also comes together with some amount of support. That, I think, is the fertile ground for recovery to take root. So I don't think that just a bottom is enough, right? Because again, a bottom, you know, a lot of times we think we've hit bottom, but we were wrong, right? Right, right. More to come. Surely this should, this, this should straighten me out. Right. Right. And, and we see lots of people who suffer really horrible consequences that just simply don't get sober. So there's more to it than that. However, to, to, to pretend that that's not a component of it, right? Like, you know, what got me into recovery the first time around, right, was I got arrested, mm-hmm. right? And the, and the van I had been sleeping in was taken away from me. And the job where I had been making the money to buy the drugs was gone and I was in enough of a precarious spot that I opened myself to go to detox, right? We call that a window of opportunity. Yes. And right? I think that's a I think that that's a better term, I think, than than bottom, right? Um but again, I don't think a window of opportunity is is sufficient if there aren't those other things, right? So I I happen to find myself in a place I went into detox, right? Not not because I was ready to get sober, but because I was going to be dope sick and I didn't know what to do. But there, somebody managed to offer me some amount of support and hope that coincided with my 
bottom or window of opportunity. And those things came together and I was able to grab onto it, right? And, you know, something similar happened the second time around. There was an event, me uh, passing out and not getting home to take my son to school, right? Which, again, was a non-event on, on one hand, but internally, I knew like I screwed that up, right? So there was an event, you know, there was my wife being angry with me. There was an event and then there was, you know, there were meetings which caused me to have some degree of hope and support, right? And so it kind of all came together. So I don't think it's a useless concept, but I don't think it's, it's the whole game like we often pretend it is, the bottom. I agree very much with your your feeling on this in that two, uh, two things. Number one, I do really do believe that your bottom is when you stop digging. Right. Right. And sometimes you stop digging because you're, you stop breathing. And so you can't dig if you can't breathe and you're dead. Right. So I, I, it drew, I, I believe fully that my, uh, the, the true bottom is when, you know, you're dead and everything up until that point, it's when you stop digging right now. Right. Uh, I also believe that uh, uh, very much like falling into a hole, right? Um, you also need, you know, a ladder or a rope or something to get out, right? <laughs> you know, and that's typically, you know, some sort of uh, recovery program um, and some sort of you know, uh, external support uh, that helps us get out, right? Uh, and it's that, you know, uh, I really believe that, through the course of my active addiction, there were windows of opportunities where the truth of my disease slapped me in the face and I ignored them Yep. and I ignored them. And that happened relatively frequently. Period. I would say it happened periodically through my active addiction and alcoholism where the truth of my disease slapped me in the face in the form of a DWI, in the form of a lost relationship, and so on, that broke through the delusion that I didn't have a problem, that I had this thing managed, that everything was okay, right? Those events broke through, and I chose to ignore them anyway. And then an event happened where the offer of help was also there. And that created sort of, as you described, the perfect storm of the reality of my disease that I couldn't deny. I could no longer deny it at that point, right? And I think that was really the difference. There was an honesty. There was a self-honesty that occurred in that moment that didn't occur before. And, uh, and, and I got really honest with myself. Mm -hmm. And the truth of my disease was undeniable and I no longer um, chose to ignore it. And like you, I can't explain, I, you know, I came in this time just not wanting to get divorced for the third time, you know? And uh, for some reason, I, you know, got really, really honest for the first time with one individual about my addiction and my alcoholism and cried like a baby in that treatment counselor's office. I can't tell you why I did that, but I did. 
so, you know, w- as we look back, you know, I, I can relate to this. Something changed. I don't know why it changed, but it did. Right. So tell me a little bit about the impetus for the one you feed. Yeah, the One You Feed podcast, you know, we've been doing it about six years now. And I said I've been sober for about 13 years, which means I didn't get sober and immediately start a podcast. Um, you know, it, there were, a, you know, like, like everything, right? There were a variety of impetuses. After I got sober, I um, was in recovery for a little while. I started a solar energy company and uh, that really, you know, occupied me uh, for, for a, a long period of time. And ultimately I decided to kind of pull the plug on that. And so I was a little bit bored. I mean, I was working. I, I've always done, um, been in the software world. And so, you know, I, um, you know, I was doing, I was doing consulting and I was doing, I was doing work, but I was a little bit bored. And I just was in that place where, um, what's the, what's the right way to, to phrase this, right? We, we tend to know that our minds gravitate towards a less than ideal spot when left to themselves, right? Absolutely. And I was in a place where I felt like I was somewhat I didn't feel like some of the things I needed for my next level of growth I was getting in the AA community I was in. Mm. Right? I just, and that, that was more an intuition and a hunch than anything, right? Um, and so I thought, you know, the idea just kind of came to me like, well, I could do this podcast and I could ask my best friend, Chris, who's an audio engineer, and he could help me do it. And then that would mean I would spend more time with him. And if I'm interviewing these people each week about you know, this, this parable and what it means to live a good life, I'll be reading their books in order to prepare. And I will be fully immersed, fully 100% immersed in you know, um, ideas that are good for my, my growth and recovery. That feed your desire and your craving for spiritual truth, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's so a- that feeling that you had maybe was okay. Maybe I'm I'm not getting the spiritual truth I need right now, and I need to start looking for this in other places as well. And I need to I need to continue to broaden my my spiritual quest. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I think that's a great way to put it. And so, yeah, it was, and so I started it and it, it, um, it's been an amazing journey. It did everything I expected and more. And, you know, what was surprising about the whole thing was that it started to get, you know, kind of popular and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, it's hard to define popular, right? Like not popular, like American Idol, but but popular as in, you know, thousands of people start listening and paying attention and I start hearing from people. And, you know, it's been a journey of six years, but, you know, I, I do the podcast and I do coaching work associated with it. And that's what I do for a living now. Um, it took a while to get there, you know, and that wasn't the goal when I started it by any stretch. But over time, it started to become, you know, that started to be part of what it was. So, um, you know, and at this point, you know, it's, it's, you know, we've, we've been downloaded, you know, probably over the course of our time, something like 15 million times. Um, and so, you know, it, it just has, it's been an amazing, an amazing, amazing thing. And, and it's one of those things I look back on and go, that was a really good idea. 
<laughs> I'm really glad I did that. Yeah. I mean, and when I say that, I mean, for me, I don't necessarily mean like, oh, it was a really good idea. Like in the grand scheme of great ideas, I'm not, I'm not equivalent. I'm not making an equivalence between like Einstein going, oh, let me see relativity. I just mean for me, it was a really good idea. Tell me a little bit about um, uh, some of the more memorable experiences you've had as a, a part of this journey. I relate so very intimately with the experience of being able to interview, engage, and connect with really, really interesting people that have uh, have really valuable experiences that have lended so much to my own recovery in my life and to my perspective, how I relate to the world, how I relate to the God of my understanding. It's been a tremendous journey for me, right? Yeah. To be able to, and an absolute honor to be able to have these experiences and be able to interview these really amazing, authentic people. Tell me some about some of the more memorable experiences you've had as a part of your podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, early on, we interviewed a guy named Mike Scott, who's the singer for a band called The Waterboys. And, you know, I was a huge fan of The Waterboys from the time I was like 15. Right. And so, you know, I don't know how old I was when I interviewed him in my 40s. Right. Um, you know, this guy, I had had just loved his music and his music had meant so much to me and been so important in my life so many countless times. Right. An opportunity to sit down and talk with him about, you know, what mattered in life and his music and was was you know i just that stands out for me because it was such an it was an early experience and it was one that was just so filled with excitement and joy for me you know to to be able to do that and you know i've had so many of those with people that that i really admire i um several years ago i interviewed a spiritual teacher by the name of adi ashanti and um you know i started preparing for his interview like i do anybody else and it just sort of something was different in the way I read what he had to say and his perspective. And, you know, that ended up me going to sit several, you know, week long retreats with him. Um, I've interviewed him three or four times since. And it's just been this really, you know, it was, it felt like a big, you know, like a real strong spiritual connection, right? To him and the ideas. And I felt like it really deepened my growth. And, you know, so that's one that sort of stands out because it was, it, it felt like a real evolution and a change. His ideas did something really different to me. Um, some, some transformation occurred. Some, yeah, some pretty big transformation and and some big transformation that I honestly am not sure I felt that level of transformation since when I got sober the first time. You know, I remember getting sober the first time and just, you know, just feeling at different points like, holy mackerel am I changing. Mm -hmm. My goodness am I, like big fundamental shifts in the way I viewed the world. Mm. You know, and, and, uh, and, 
you know, the, the time I got, you know, the second time I got sober, I wouldn't say what I felt like. As I felt like I was shifting back to a healthy place I'd been when I was sober before, but I didn't feel like I was necessarily uncovering a lot of new ground. Um, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, I was going deeper, but, but, but some of this stuff, you know, things happened to me in an ego sense that I'd not had happen before. Right. And, and, you know, real pretty significant changes that I just was like, came out the other side of an experience is going, Whoa, I feel really, I'm different. I feel know? changed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the nature of my recovery and spiritual growth is always been what I would consider pretty incremental, except again, in those early days, but every once in a while I'll have an experience or something and, and it'll feel like, boom, you know, something, something big shifted. And, and so, you know, I think the time that I spent on retreats with him did some of that for me. And again, it's not who he is. It's just that the way he presents things, right, resonates with me in a way that I understand things. And I think that's the beauty of you doing what you do and me doing what I do and countless other people doing what they do is you just never know who's going to be able to hear you in a I, way. I fundamentally believe that, man. I fundamentally believe that we're all supposed to, you know, uh, reach people in, 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 in a way that others can't. And the more voices we have that are speaking their own truth in an authentic way, the more people that will hear that truth that are supposed to hear it. Yes. And it, and it will make a difference. I, I could not, I could not agree more. I think that's a really good way to put it too, right? Because there are people will, there will be people who hear me and what I say, it's nothing different than they have, than 30 people haven't said to them before, but there's something about the way I say it or where they are when they hear me that will resonate differently in the same way that they will with you in the same way that, you know, and you're right, the more voices, the more chances people have of hearing it. And that is the whole point of what I do, of what you do, and getting other voices on your podcast gives greater opportunity for people to connect to those voices and perhaps change. And perhaps it provides the impetus for maybe an incremental change, yep. maybe a transformational change. We don't, I don't get, I, you know, one thing I understand about my higher power is I don't get to decide that, right? <laughs> right. You know? Yep. It's up to me to tr put my spiritual truth out there in a real and authentic way, in a way that's purpose intended to be as helpful as possible, but the result and the outcome, that's, that's, that's on the, that's on my higher power, right? Right. Yep. So tell me. Eric, before we close, the single most important book in your recovery to date, so our listeners can uh, read that if they want, because I really do believe reading these kinds of books could be the voice we need to hear that provides the impetus for some change, right? And the... One piece of wisdom, the one piece of, we'll call it advice, call it a suggestion, call it whatever you want, that really 
transformed your spiritual relationship? Okay. Well, book, that's a tough one. Um, you know, early on for me, the, the AA big book was obviously the book that probably did more for me, you know, probably caused more change in me than any other book mm. ever over the course of history, right? Just the mm. amount that I, you know, so, but, but that's, that's, you know, that may, that may be a, a, a somewhat repetitive and boring answer. Um, so I'll go with another one. Um, it's a book called When Things Fall Apart. And it's by a Buddhist teacher by the name of Pema Chodron. And it was a book I read when my, you know, the marriage I was talking about fell apart. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that the main thing that that book gave me, and it, it, it went on to inform my spiritual perspective, you know, sort of evermore, which was there's no way to stop bad things happening in life. However, what that book gave me was the belief and the understanding and some tools for the fact that no matter what it is that happens, I feel like I'm capable of handling it and coping with it and growing from it. That you're able to take that experience and use it for growth and for change and, and to become the person you want to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to start with, right, survive, right? Because I think a lot of times when we're in the middle <laughs> Get through of, it, yeah. when we're really in the middle of like no hard stuff, it's like, am I going to get through this? Right? Yeah. Is it ever going to yeah. end? Is this going to break me? Is this going to, right, yeah. Yeah, um, and then, yeah, you're right. And then how, you know, and then, you know, not only will I get through it, but that I will, I will at some day, the day will come where I will look at this experience and go, that was good for me. That was a, I wouldn't wish it on myself. I don't want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody else. I'm not a believer in like, oh, well, you know, you know, bad things happen so that we can transform. I, I don't really believe that. I believe bad things just happen because bad things happen. That said, the seeds of transformation are in them if we choose to find them and work on them. So that book was, that book was pretty, pretty important to me in that regard. When things fall apart. I love it. We're going to put that in the show notes. So if you're listening, check the show notes. We'll have that book title in the show notes. If you are so inclined. Before we part, Eric, the, the piece of wisdom, the piece of spiritual truth, the advice that really made a big difference for you. I think that, I, I think that I'm going to go with the idea of the, the burden or the bondage of self. Hmm. I, I think that when I, you know, early on in recovery, one of those fundamental shifts was me was when I read that like selfishness, self-centeredness that we think is the root of our problem. Right. Hmm. And th there's a little bit of a moralizing tone to that, that I don't like in retrospect. Right. Like, I feel like there's a little bit of a, like, you know, something like I'm bad. Right. But sure. that's the human condition. Right. As, as, as a human, as any organism in the world 
right? That's the fundamental thing where every organism in the world is wired to move towards what we like and move away from what we don't like. It's, it's Self-preservation the, is at the core of what it means to stay alive. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so the fact that we might be sort of quote unquote selfish, self-centered, again, there's, there's a little bit more moralizing in that term than I would like. But here's what I, do, what I have realized that I think is true is that the, the smaller my perspective on anything is, the more I suffer, right? And so when my perspective about what's important in the world narrows down to exactly how I feel, I really suffer. When my perspective broadens, and this goes across the board in, in, in almost any way you can think of, a, 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 a broader perspective, a wider perspective, a bigger perspective that includes more leads to less suffering, and a shrinking, collapsing perspective leads to more suffering for me. And again, I think we can apply this in lots of different ways, but at the fundamental level, right, this is why service work, helping other people, it's, it's a broader perspective. We go from how do I feel, how do I feel, to, you know, maybe it's still how do I feel, how do I feel, but a little bit of how you feel, right? No and doubt that, about it. And it, that, movement, that movement leads to freedom. It leads to less suffering. And the, and the more that we make that outward flowing motion, the, the, the better our life is and the more we let the, the, the general energy be this inward flowing, uh, you know, collapsing energy, the more we suffer. And that, my friend, is a universal spiritual truth that I have experienced. The more I focus on how I feel, which I used to, that used to be legitimately the only thing I cared about and what and your behavior so long as it affected how I felt. Right. Right. The process to get out of myself from a spiritual perspective and from a human connection perspective. Now, it reminds me of the prayer of St. Francis, right? In order to, if I want to feel love, I have to love, right? If I want to, um, you know, uh, and I'm not, I don't necessarily subscribe again to the, the Christian God, but the, the, the fundamental universe, spiritual truth that sits behind that prayer right. is that I must give in order to truly receive, Right. Uh, and there is an absolutely, so that's a, that's the, that's the money right there. That is the money. And as a father, how old is your son right now? He's 21. He's 21 years old. I have an 18 year old, well, soon to be 18. I have a 17 year old and a 15 year old that I related. You just, it was kind of a flyaway comment for you, but I related to it because you said sometimes I was easier to get along with as a parent when I was (laughs) drinking than I was sober. I could intimately identify with that with two teenagers. For sure. <laughs> you know, I, was, I, I let a lot of things go when I was drinking, right? <laughs> I, don't, yep. I don't as much anymore because I'm trying to be a good parent and uh, they don't always like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I was not a better parent. 
<laughs> I just uh, had moments where our, you know, I was more fun to be around. That That's would be right. <laughs> That's right. No. And, and I'm very glad that I got sober when I did. And I had, you know, uh, you know, at this point, 15, 16 years of, of, well, I guess now I got sober a little bit later, but yeah, a, a lot of years of being a sober parent to him. He's doing well and thriving, which I am enormously grateful for. Indeed. Brother, I can't thank you enough for the time and for being a part of the Way Out podcast. If you guys want to check out the One You Feed, it's oneyoufeed.net. I will have that link on the show notes so that you can check out that amazing podcast. And uh, uh, how many episodes? We're coming up on our 300th episode. Dang. I know. Dang. Are you guys going to party? What's going to, I mean, is there going to be something like, you know, uh, are you, are you, you know, uh, pulling out all the stops for number 300? We should, but we're in the middle of a lot of other stuff. So we're, we're just going to kind of probably say thanks for 300 and, and, and go on. <laughs> That's probably, it's Some probably, we need yeah. to stop and, 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 and celebrate a little bit more for sure. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, congratulations on coming up on 300. I know Thank how hard that is. I know how much work that is. Great work you're doing. Keep up the, the amazing work and uh, hopefully we will not be strangers. Yes, yes. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time, and remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.